So I have a few statements here for you, and I want you to fill in the blanks. You ready? Everybody ready? You ready to participate here as we begin? Usually on the first one, you're terrible. So let's not do that this time. Let's participate right away. Are you ready? Action, speak louder than... Hey, you guys are learning. Very good. Okay. Put your money where your... Talk is... Be careful on this one. He is full of... Hot air, hot air. Okay, I see you. I see all of you. That is not good that that came to mind there. Or one more. Don't worry about that. That's nothing but an empty threat. Okay, all right, all right. That was, empty threats, empty threats. No, okay, okay. You don't say that. Must be a northern thing. All right. All of these expressions communicate essentially the same thing, don't they? It is quite possible for what we say not to match up with what we do. Isn't that right? Sometimes what we say is strangely out of sync with what we do. While having words and actions that are out of step are harmful to our friendships, detrimental to our careers, and distressing to our families... According to James, if what we say and what we do don't match up in our relationship with God, it is downright damning. He couldn't speak any stronger warnings in this passage. Apparently, in James' context, there were those who thought that if they said all the right things, then they must be right with God. That is, if I knew how to talk the talk... If I had religious sayings in my vocabulary, somehow that must mean that I am right with the Lord. And yet James could not disagree more. Look at James verse chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And the answer to that rhetorical question is what? No. no. Or verse 17 again. So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Do you, verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith without works is useless? Verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is It's quite an indictment. According to this passage, faith without action is useless, dead, and cannot save. Wow. I mean, James is not holding anything back. In other words, if your money is not where your mouth is, your faith is useless, dead, and it will not take you to heaven. Which leads to the point of the message today, and I hope the point of James' passage. It's simply this. We must cultivate active faith in our lives. If you want to have real faith, it has to be a faith that works. It has to be an active faith. If we are to avoid the useless, dead, unsaving faith that James is talking about here, our faith must be moving. So this raises the question, what does active faith look like? How are we live by active faith? If, if that is what real faith is, how are we to live in that way? Thankfully for us, James answers that question, but he does it in a little bit of an unusual way. He actually tells us what active faith is not in this passage. 
He gives us the definition by telling us what active faith is not. So I want to look at three things this morning, Lord willing, arising directly from the text. Active faith is not, number one, religious sentiment. The passage begins with a rather powerful vignette. Look at verse 14 again. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith and does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? The illustration is simple. You come in contact with a fellow believer who is in an obvious state of need. And then seeing their plight, you say something like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear about that. Oh, that's... That's terrible. I'm sorry that this has happened to you. I'm sure God's going to work that out for you. And then you go happily on your way. James' question for us is this. What good is that? And the answer is absolutely none. That is of no good whatsoever. The Apostle John almost says the exact same thing over in 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. But if someone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed or truth. I think that's John's way of saying talk is what? He's just saying the same things James is saying, that Active faith is not just religious sentiment. Look, listen to this statement very carefully. Heavenly sounding words that do not result in acts of love are of no earthly good. You can talk a big game. You can say the right things. But if it doesn't impact the way you live and the way you treat people who are hurting and suffering, then your heavenly words are of no earthly good. Then just to make sure we get it, James says in verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now James' point is not that we should avoid religious sounding speech. That's not what he's getting at. But that we should recognize just being able to talk like a Christian alone is not sufficient. Christian vocabulary should always be accompanied by Christian deeds. Right? Like Christian vocabulary is not alone enough to help someone. Christian vocabulary must be accompanied by Christian deeds. And this is a needy, needed warning for us. We now Southerners, I have fully embraced my identity as a Southerner. We need this warning. We who eat at Chick-fil-A and eat only Christian chicken, Right? We who listen to K-Love, you may be fluent in all the Christian phrases like, oh, bless her heart, or won't he do it, or God is good, and God is good. Hey. But listen, just because you can say those things doesn't necessarily mean that your heart is transformed, does it? 
Real faith is more than being able to say the right words. It is a heart that is so changed by the work of Christ that it overflows in acts of compassion. If you have active faith, it means that you don't just speak the right things. It means your heart has been transformed by the work of Jesus on your behalf. So here's my question for all of us. What suffering has been lessened because of your faith? What suffering in this world has been lessened because of your faith? What marginalized person has been in your home? What orphan or fatherless person have you cared for? What impoverished person have you supported? What fellow believer have you helped out of a jam? Listen to this. Authentic faith does not ignore a brother in need. It can't because our heart is so transformed by what Jesus has done for us that it is just a natural overflow of our hearts that we see a need, we see a brother who's hurting, and we move towards them. Talk is cheap. Active faith, real faith, moves towards suffering, moves towards hurt, moves towards our brothers and sisters when they are being sidelined and marginalized and treated poorly. And we say, I, have the, I don't have a lot, but I have this and I can step into this situation. <laughs> man, I saw this so graphically in our previous church in Chicago. There was a young man who was a member of our congregation who had some significant health issues. He was in his 20s and just terrible health. I mean, he could just not like stay out of bed. What they found out was that most of his problems stemmed from the fact that his kidneys did not function and he needed a transplant. Our church family was aware of this need. And as we regularly prayed that the young man would provide a kidney donor for this, the Lord answered our prayer in the most remarkable way. One of our church members went to the hospital, had all the tests done to see that she was compatible, and when she found out she was, she donated her kidney to this young man who she didn't know apart from being a part of our church. Now, I was standing beside those hospital beds, and I don't think I've been closer to Jesus than in that moment. Because what happened? What happened? Our sister, Robin saw our brother Cedric and said to him, I hope you get better. I'm praying for you. But to her, it was not sufficient just to say the right Christian words. She saw a need and because the gospel had transformed her heart, she moved towards her in a radical, sacrificial way. Now the Lord may not be calling you to give away your kidney. But I think the same impulse should mark all of us. We can't just be content to say, well, I have faith and I say all the right words. Our faith should propel us beyond religious sentiment and into deeds and acts of compassion. Active faith is far more than just saying the right words. Number two, active faith is also not theological orthodoxy. James offers another needed word of warning. Apparently, there were those in, in James's context who were basing their standing before God on the orthodoxy of their doctrine. That is, they thought that simply because they knew and believed the right things about God, 
that they had a right relationship with God. To this, James responds, verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Look at verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. In other words, knowing the truth and being transformed by the truth are not the same thing. Knowing the truth and being transformed by the truth are not the same thing. Then James uses like the most shocking illustration available to him. Look at verse 19 again. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You see, the devil and his minions know a good deal of the truth of God. They are ancient creatures. They are thousands of years old. And they have no doubt studied the Bible from cover to cover. They even respond to the truth with a degree of appropriateness. They shudder before the truth. They are so gripped, so impacted by the truth of God's word that they shudder at it. Yet, in spite of this, no one would argue that Beelzebub... Or legion have been transformed by the word of God. Listen, knowledge alone won't cut it. Just because you know the right things about God, just because you can sign off on a proper doctrinal statement, doesn't mean that you are in an active relationship with God. Active faith is more than theological orthodoxy. Now listen to this very carefully. Though right doctrine is indispensable, it alone is insufficient. Now Gospel Hope, if you've been around for any period of time, you know that we place a high premium on sound doctrine. I mean, we just finished a systematic theology class in our equip hour because we value doctrine. It is important to us. We preach biblical sermons. We discuss the Bible in our community groups. We train our little ones with the biblical stories as soon as we can get them. We hope because of your time here at Gospel Hope, whether it's been a long time or a short time, we hope that everyone here could say, because of my time at this church, I know the Bible better. But we do not think we have achieved our goal if we just help you to know the Bible better. Our mission statement at Gospel Hope is not to produce dominant Bible trivia players. That is not our goal. Real faith is more than agreeing that the Bible is true. Real faith is letting the truth of God's word so soak into your life that it begins to transform who you are. Now, out in California, we have had some wildfires, right? And, and I, I read recently that when soil gets charred by a wildfire, it can take on a quality which is called hydrophobic. In other words, that, that soil gets so charred that even if you pour water on it, it just kind of floats on the top. It doesn't sink in. It's so burnt that there is no room for the water to soak into the soil. In the same way, God's word will not transform us 
if we just kind of let it sit on the surface of our life. If we don't let the truth soak into our lives. We can become truthophobic in one sense. Where, yeah, we know all the right things. We say all the right things, but those truths have never worked their way in into our life where we've taken it into us and it begins to transform who we are. I think that's what James is talking about. James is saying, you believe there's one God? Good, good. You should believe that there's one God, but if you think that just believing that there is one God is enough, you got another thing coming. Even the devils of hell believe there's one God and they tremble at it. You've got to know the word and then let it impact you. Let it transform you. Not just simply sit on the surface of your life. Listen, God's word is meant to change both what we believe and how we behave. God didn't just give us a book to change the way we think. He gave us a book to change the way we live. Now, it's got to start with the way you think. There's no question about it. Like, doctrinal orthodoxy is critical. It is indispensable. You cannot do without it, but it alone is insufficient. If we're to really have active faith, let's not let the word just kind of sit on the surface of us. Let's let the word get down in the nooks and crannies and cracks and crevices of our life and find the spots where it hasn't impacted and be so utterly transformed by the word that our faith is not just religious sentiment. It's not a right doctrinal statement, but it is shown in the way we live and act and treat other people from day to day. How has the word of God not informed you? How has it changed you? Number three. Active faith is not only not religious sentiment, it is not theological orthodoxy alone, but it is also not impressive pedigree. Say, what do you mean by that? Well, James rounds out this section by illustrating his point from two Old Testament figures. The first figure he goes to is Abraham. Look at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now that's a controversial passage, by the way. At first glance, when you just read that, it looks like James is contradicting other passages in the Bible that teach that we are justified by faith alone. For instance, over in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, here's what the apostle Paul says. And to the one who does not work, whoa, does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So do we have a problem here? Is the Bible at odds with itself? Is James saying that you're justified by works and Paul saying that you're justified by faith? I don't think we have a problem. And here's why. Look carefully at what James is saying. He is not arguing, I think, that Abraham is saved by his works, but rather that the genuineness of Abraham's faith was demonstrated by his works. 
Look at verse 22. It says, faith was active along with his works. Or verse 22, his faith was completed by his works. In other words, James or, or Abraham made his faith demonstrable. Abraham made his faith clear. Abraham made his faith visible by the works that he did. The consistent teaching of the Bible is that we are saved by our faith in the finished work of Jesus. And as we've seen in this passage, that real faith in the work of Christ inevitably acts. That's what the Bible teaches. We are saved by the finished work of Jesus. But when you trust in that finished work of Jesus, it inevitably leads you to action. You cannot help it. How many of you have heard the story before of the famous tightrope walker, Blondine? Have you heard this story before? It's used in sermons all the time. I had to do all kinds of research to make sure my facts were correct and not apocryphal. And as far as I know, I got this story right, okay? So Blondine was a famous tightrope walker, and he's most famous for walking across Niagara Falls. He actually had like this... this event there for over a year where he was doing all these spectacular things. First of all, he walked the whole distance, which in and itself was incredible. But then he was so good that he began to do all kinds of things. Like he, he, would, he would walk across pushing a wheelbarrow. He, he, would, he would walk across and do a handstand in the middle. One of his most outlandish ones was he walked across carrying like a little stove on his back, went to the middle of it, put it out there, cooked an omelet, ate it, and then walked the rest of the way across the thing. He'd walk out with a chair, put one leg on the chair of it, and sit on the chair there in the middle of Niagara Falls. The guy was utterly death-defying. It was said that people thought he was the greatest tightrope walker of all time. They thought he just couldn't fall. I mean, he was that incredible. Um, and yet, and yet, nobody really put their faith in Blondine, right? I mean, they, they believed that he could do it, but it was mere, like, really intellect. Except for one guy. One guy, his manager. Blondine wanted to carry somebody across Niagara Falls, and he couldn't get anybody else to do it. I mean, understandably so, right? He, in fact, asked the Prince of Wales, who was at the... At one of his events, he said, do you think I can walk across this carrying a man? And the Prince of Wales says, well, of course I do. And Blondine says, well, do you want to hop on my back? And the prince says, of course I don't. But his manager, his manager did. His manager was the name, his manager's name was Harry Colcord. And what Blondine would do repeatedly is put the man on his back and walk across Niagara Falls on a two-inch rope, staggering. Crowds would cheer, everyone would applaud, and they would say, Blondine, you are the greatest of all time. But let me ask you a question. Did the Prince of Wales and the crowds actually have faith in Blondine? Yes or no? no. Did they say the right things about him? Did Henry Colcord actually have faith in Blondine? Yes or no? Yes. Because he not only said the right things, but then what? He acted. He acted. Now look. When you put your faith in Christ, you are saved by your faith in him and him alone. But if you really do trust in him, if you really have confidence in 
If you really have put your hope in him, then it will inevitably produce deeds in your life. If we trust in Christ, our life is going to be transformed by an act of faith. It's difficult to improve on the words of John Calvin on this point. Faith alone justifies, but faith that justifies is never alone. I think that's dead right. Faith alone justifies, but faith that justifies is never alone. Then James moves on and he illustrates his point, not just with the life of Abraham, but with another Old Testament figure. Look at verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? When the nation of Israel was conquering the land of Canaan, Rahab hid the spies so that they could get away and return back and Israel would take over the city of Jericho. And to James' original Jewish audience, this would have been a quite unusual pairing when you stop and think about it. Abraham would have been the most esteemed figure in the nation, the founder of Israel, the bulwark of the faith. Rahab, on the other hand, would have been on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, a Canaanite, a woman, what is more, a prostitute, a pagan. And yet... Here they are, put side by side as examples of active faith. So of all the people that James has at his disposal, why does he put Abraham beside Rahab? Why choose those two people? I think it was to illustrate this simple truth. Real faith is not reserved for those with impressive pedigree. In order to have real and active faith, you do not have to be from a particular background or have a particular lineage. Real faith can be found in anyone who would dare to believe the good news of the gospel and allow it to revolutionize their life. For every Ahab, for every Abraham, there is a Rahab. For every Nicodemus, there is a Bartimaeus. For every King Hezekiah, there is a widow of Zarephath. And if you know the Old Testament story, those represent ends of the spectrum. No group has cornered the market on authentic faith. Look, it doesn't matter if you grew up in America or in Ethiopia, if your skin is ebony or ivory, if your bank account is huge or non-existent, if your upbringing was fantastic or traumatic, if your history is checkered or idyllic, if your reputation is spotless or sullied, or if your education is a PhD or a GE. It doesn't matter where you are from or what you have done, no matter who you are, where you have been, or what have you, you have done, real faith can flourish in your life. Real faith is not being brought up in a good home. Real faith is not going to Sunday school when you were a kid. Real faith is not being able to say the books of the Old and New Testament, as good as that is, as happy as all those stories is. Real faith can abide in anyone who would dare believe that Jesus died for sinners and allow that message to wreck them. What am I saying? Real faith is for you. 
I don't know all your stories. I know some of them. And they are, few, they, they, they are, they are as different as the people in this room, right? And yet you, you my friend, you can have real faith because it's not about what was on your birth certificate. Real faith is about have you believed in Jesus and have you allowed that message to change you from the inside out. So you might hear all this and say, man, I want to have this type of active faith, but really, Ryan, honestly, I mean, I'm listening to all this stuff and honestly, my words and actions are out of sync a lot. I see brothers and sisters who are hurting and, and frankly, if I shoot straight, I don't care that much. So wrapped up in my life and what I'm doing. I mean, what suffering is alleviated because I'm a Christian? I, I don't know. I can't, can't answer that. Yeah, I could, I could say all the right things. Man, I, I read a lot of Christian books. I listen to podcasts. And I read my Bible every day. But I don't know how I'm different than my good, nice neighbor. I don't see how that faith has transformed me. Man, it's, how do I move on? How do I get beyond just saying the right words? How do I get beyond just believing the right stuff and move to a faith that acts? How does my faith become real? Over in John 15, I think the Savior answers that question for us. Listen so carefully to the words of Jesus here. He says this. I am the vine, and you are the branches. And whoever abides in me, he, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Then verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So Jesus, like James, is saying, that we know that our faith is authentic when we act, or to put it in Jesus' way, when we bear fruit. Our faith proves to be real when there is fruit of that transformation in our life. The fruit does not make us real, but the fruit is evidence that we are real. Does that make sense there? We are not saved by bearing fruit, but being saved bears fruit in our life. So how do we get this power to act? How do we get this power to bear fruit? Jesus' answer is straightforward, and he says it this way, abide in me. Abide in me. So Jesus is the vine, and all of my spiritual life and power comes through my connection with him. He's the vine. I'm the branch. So when I get out in the world and the temptations of life start calling my name, my children who at times, at times, I know you're shocked, at times whine and complain. And I'm tempted to whine and complain right back. When, when, when the commercials come on TV and the greed in my heart starts to rear its ugly head, 
How do I fight against those things? I do it by abiding in Jesus. So let me show you this geographically. Rod, come on up here for a minute. No, I'm not. You're going to be Jesus though. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, that's true. So Rod is the vine. He is Jesus. And I'm the branch like, like all of us, right? And I get out in the world and here's the temptation. Here, James is my whiny child. You look like one, right, James? Can you give us a good wine, James? Oh, that's good. Yeah, very good. And I'm tempted to be like, I believe all the right things about God. But the only way that I'm going to respond properly to my children, to the temptations of the world, to lust, to greed, to idolatry, to everything that has reared its ugly head is I got to hang on and be like, Jesus, I can't do this, but I need you to flow through me. I need your strength. You are the vine and I'm the branch. I got to interact with the world. I got to fight these temptations, but I got to hang on to you. I believe that you can help me. I believe that you can support me. And just as you saved me in the first place, you could save me right now from this temptation. I think that's what abiding means. I think abiding means we just keep running back to the source. We keep saying, Jesus, I need you. Sustain me. Help me. And when my children whine and when my heart gets ugly, when lust rears its ugly head and when worry comes knocking at my door, what do I do? I say, oh, Jesus, deliver me right now. You are the vine. And apart from you, I can do nothing. But with you, if I hang on, I can bear fruit. And instead of bearing anger, I can, I can bear patience. And instead of bearing discontent, I can... I can I can bear joy. And instead of bearing greed, I can bear love. My life begins to be transformed, not because of what I do, but it's transformed because I'm abiding in the one who has saved me and he enables me to be transformed. How do we act? We abide. Just as you were saved by trusting in Christ, so you are transformed by trusting in Christ. Man, let me close with this story. <laughs> it doesn't have to be rocket science either. You don't have to give your kidney. That's a wonderful story. Maybe God is calling you to give a kidney. But it's, it's just the simple mundane acts of us living out what we say we believe, right? That's what act of faith is. A few weeks ago, um, I was out of town. I was actually on vacation. And as many of you know, uh, my dad, uh, about a year ago, was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And so that, that's led to some health challenges in his life. And on that week while I was gone, Trisha and I were out of town. They're sitting in community group and sharing about just some of the health struggles. And one of the struggles was simply, I, I, need, I need to do some athletic training. I need some help with that. And I'm finding trouble finding someone who can train me. Well, sitting in our group is Kwame Bowens, who played college football and is a certified trainer. And he just says, well, I can do that. And so two or three times a week overcomes Kwame and there they go. They just start working out, out in the driveway, over in the living room and, and working out. And here, here's the thing. We all get in our community groups and we look across the circle and we say, oh, I just love these people, right? 
These are my family. These are the people that I want to sacrifice for. These are the people that I care about. But if you don't do anything when you have power to do something, what? Your faith is, what would James say? Dead. It's useless. It's empty. But when you just simply do the next thing that God is calling you to do, like working out with someone, that's your faith being put into practice. To say, okay, what do we do? What do we do? I can't work out. What do I do? Let me, let me close with these two things. Our prayer team is going to come right now. And if you'd like to pray about having active faith in your life, let me challenge you in these two ways. One is open your Bible. Say that with me. Open your Bible. If our faith is going to be active, we have to believe something, first of all, right? We have to know what God is calling us to do. So open your Bible. Then the second thing is simply this. Open your hands. What do I mean by that? Just go like this to the Lord. Lord, whatever you want me to do, my life is yours. It's yours because I don't want my talk to be cheap. I don't want my faith to be useless. I don't want my faith to be dead. Lord, here's my life. Whatever you call me to do, I will do it. I have heard from you. Now here's my hands. They are open. I'm not hanging on to anything. I am yours. God, do with me what you would want me to do. Maybe that will propel you into the refugee community. Maybe that will take you across the street. Maybe that will take you across the world. But brothers and sisters, we want our faith to be active. Let Gospel Hope be a place where they can't say about us that their talk is cheap, that their words are empty, that their faith is useless. But let our neighborhoods, let our community, let our city, let our world be a different place because our faith is active. Amen, isn't that what you want? Let's hear the word of God and respond. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna pray. The worship team is gonna come. And as they come, we're gonna stand together and we're gonna sing. And if you just want prayer about an area of this life, you see the folks standing on the side, they'd love to pray with you. Maybe you need to get in the word. Maybe you don't have a regular time where you're spending with the Lord. I'd encourage you, let's pray about that today. Ask somebody to pray about that with you. Maybe there's some areas of your life you're holding on to that you're not willing to turn away from. And you say, Lord, I just want to have open hands about my whole life. Lord, would you help me to release that and to just be active in my faith? They'd love to pray with you. Let's respond to the Lord this morning. Can we stand together? Lord, we need you. Help us to respond in appropriate ways to how you've spoken. As we worship you, Lord, help it not to be just words, but help it to be supported by actions. We are saved by Jesus and him alone, but if we trust in Jesus, we can't help but be transformed. So would you do what you need to do in our lives? In the precious name of Christ our Savior, we pray. Amen.